Well, tonight we begin uh, Romans 1, as we had an introduction last week. We are led uh, through our study of Romans with Reed Davis, a parishioner here at St. Anne's. And before we officially begin, we'll start with prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with the pure light of thy divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understandings of your gospel teachings, and plant also in us the fear of your blessed commandments. That trample down all carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things which are well pleasing unto you. For you are the illumination of our souls and bodies of Christ our God, and unto you do we ascribe glory to God through your Father, who is from everlasting in your all holy, good, life creating spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. 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 <clears throat> Read, take it away. Okay, thank you, Father. Um, so we're going to start into the actual text and try to get through Romans 1 tonight. Um, so we'll have to skim over a couple of details to do that. But um, it, do you see my Hellenistic letter format up here again? Yes. So in chapter 1, we're going to get through the salutation, um, the greeting, and the thanksgiving or prayer um, and we'll kind of make a break there and then start into the, the body of the letter. I'm sure there could be a little bit of debate about precisely where that starts, but we should get it approximately right. And um, again, as I've been pouring over St. John Chrysostom's homilies on this first chapter and sort of trying to put them together and understand what does he see in here, um, I, I concluded that maybe at the, you know, last week I'd said sort of what Romans is about is the apostle trying to help the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers to kind of sort themselves out with each other. But I think maybe something stronger should be said, which is he's trying to promote their unity, which maybe is obvious, but um, lurking behind a lot of the book, but especially what we see in the first chapter, is the distinction between pride and unity, or really pride and humility, but pride destroying unity, and the contrast between faith on the one hand, and not only law, which we're familiar with, but reasonings. Um, and so let me give a little background to this. Rome was the greatest city of its day and the ruler of the world. And, you know, as you probably understand, in the ancient world, where you came from was important and who your family was was important. And so he's writing to believers in the greatest city of the world, the ruler of the world. They have all of the possibilities for pride of, of their birth, where they were born, their lineage, whom they're born of, of the wealth and power that comes with the capital city. And again, that's true even today, but even much more so, it seems, in the ancient world. What other pride are we dealing with? Well, the Jews were proud of their possession of the law. The Greeks, which is often just a synonym for Gentiles, they were proud of the traditions of philosophy. And it seems that the apostle is trying to call all of them to humility because he's teaching them about a gospel that involves a savior who was born not in a great city, but among a despised people, a despised a subject nation. He was born to common family, impoverished. He was crucified as a criminal. So all of the things that make Rome, Rome, he doesn't have. And he's not offering to them in the gospel, Paul is not offering to them either the law of the Jews or the philosophical wisdom of the Greeks, but faith. And the humility that goes with that, and that humility then is the basis for their unity because it's the pride that divides them. Um, so with kind of that as the background, uh, would someone be willing to read the first 17 verses? Sure. Thank you. Paul, 
a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God, with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you are also the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve, with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if, by some means, now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I planned to come to you, but was hindered until now that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor to both Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So, as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first, and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Thank you. Okay, so let me ask, first of all, I'm saying that uh, according to Chrysostom, this passage is largely about humility and about unity, what do you see in here that might lead him to read the Apostle Paul in that way? I think one of the thir first things that pops out at me is verse 5 that the grace and the apostleship that Paul received from God is for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. That it's a message from the very beginning, even though he was set apart and separated for the gospel, like Jeremiah or the prophets of old, uh, there's a specific reason, and that's because the message is for everyone. Right. And this is one of the passages that uh, St. John Chrysostom points out. He mentions all nations. So I'm writing to you, Romans, my message is for everyone. You're, you're not special in this regard. What else? Well, there's also verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So there's your, there's your unity between Jew and Greek. But then there's that other verse uh, where he says something about, oh, I lost it. About being a debtor in verse 14? No, it's what about, he, he says something about, you know, I, I, I got to help you and you can help me, is the sense of it. Verse uh, 12. <clears throat> yeah, verses 11 and 12. That, yes, for I long to see you that I impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and, and me. So that there, there's some humility there. It's, it's not as much laying down the law as in being encouraged together. Yeah, and Chrysostom looks at that passage and says, 
Now, the real situation in Rome is these people are need of, in need of some serious instruction, and the apostle is writing to them to give it to them, to give them what they need, but he wants to make the message more palatable. And so he casts himself in this rather humble light, not falsely, um, but that he may take the role of their also being his teacher so that they will be more ready to receive what he has to say to them. Anything else? Are you saying that maybe the people, other people might be moved by the spirit to add to it? You know, everybody has their own little gifts and their own little whatever's, uh, they might see a revelation and what, when Paul speaks, like when Father gives their, when all the fathers and the deacons give their homily, every person that listens to it, it pertains to their life. And so they all hear a little bit something different. Uh, they were not all, we're hearing the same thing, but we all apply it differently. So somebody might have something extra to say to it based on their mm -hmm. I mean, that's certainly what verse 12 seems to leave the door open for. I might also say I've got a little bit of experience with teaching, and I have discovered through teaching that I learn more from teaching, perhaps, than some of the people that I teach. And that's sure. because of the, the <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, as, as long as we're on the same page and caring about the same thing, because their questions give me deeper insights into what I've been talking about. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I guess it's axiomatic. The teacher always learns the most. Yeah, and I think that's a little bit of what you're awake more 12 than the maybe students. about. <laughs> you have to be. But um, Chris Tomasa points out, you see in verse one, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. And you see that word called, and he uses it again and again here. In verse six, among you whom, among whom you all also are the called of Jesus Christ. Verse seven, to all in, who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. And I think there's even another one. Um, and what he sees there is he's emphasizing, you weren't just so clever that you thought of doing this. I wasn't so clever that I thought of being an apostle. Apostle, I didn't just take this on myself, but I had a calling. You have a calling. We are responding to a God who was seeking us. There's nothing for us to boast about in that either. Um, and there are um, oh, a few other things here. Um, It's, uh, you know, Chrysostom looks at verse 16, for he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And he, he comments on the incongruity of this statement, right? Because how does the Apostle Paul view the gospel? Does he view it as something glorious? One would think so. And certainly we know from other places he does, right? The gospel is a glorious thing, but he doesn't say to the Romans, I glory in the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of it. And Christostom elaborates, well, why would he put it this way? <laughs> You're talking about the glories. You know, up in verse uh, four, Christ has been declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Okay, glorious things. Um, and the question is, why would he say I'm, I'm not ashamed? Would anyone have been ashamed of the gospel? I thought that's crossing my mind, and I, I don't know if this applies, but they're used to the Pharisees and, and, and the Sadducees and all those other ones kind of being uh, prideful and bowlful and, 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 and stuff, so Maybe he's trying to loosen them up and, and say, I'm not trying to be like that. I mean, not 
accusing them of anything, but just trying to open it up a little bit more. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Christmas Demoth often talks about the apostle saying a lot less than is true so as to make his message more palatable. But why would anyone, Rome, middle of the first century, think of the gospel as something to be ashamed of? Oh, the Jews were not, um, they're not Romans. That's right. <laughs> they, um, they're a weird little uh, sect that has their strange little religion where they think they're the, they worship the one true God. And so as you, as you opened up, uh, are going into this chapter, we're talking about, I mean, this is about like, uh, Arkansas to Washington, DC here. <laughs> That's right. Um, or Manhattan, maybe. <laughs> is it, I'm hesitant to say, but is it more of a socioeconomic thing? That the, I think that's a big part of it, yes. Do you want to elaborate on that? Well, that, you know, well, perhaps it's perceived um, that the gospel of Christ is a religion of the, the underclass, the peasantry, uh, the, the ignorant. And we're much too cosmopolitan in, in Rome for that sort of thing. That's right. Uh, You'll see that later at the end of the book where there's a lot of households and things, right? At the end of Romans, uh, discussions of the different households and the groups and how they get along, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. It was thought of as a slave religion, was it not? I think so. Which was Christianity? Oh. So, I mean, I, mean, I, what, I think Philip, you could be supported by just thinking about Corinthians. One of the major issues they have with the love feast with the Eucharist and the, the meal afterwards is they're separating according to money. <laughs> who had what or who, who could do what? Yeah, I mean, you think of what would give people status. I mean, in the world today, it hasn't really changed that much, but all the more so in the ancient world. Where are you from? Are you from Rome? No, from Judea. Who are your people? Are they nobility? Well, no, a carpenter and a, a common woman, as she would be viewed. How you know, Reed, I, I, as you're talking, I, and I'm just rereading just the end of 16, where he says, for it's for the Jew first and also for the Greek. That is a very upside down way of thinking for a Roman too, because the Romans are used to just kind of absorbing the religions and just saying, okay, like what they did with the Greek gods, they just kind of, you know, give them different names. And, uh, but from the very beginning, Paul is very clear that he's rooting his apostleship and what he's doing in the prophets and the scripture of Israel. So he's not ashamed of the fact that the gospel it has that background and roots, I think is part of, you know, mm. and it's and it's the Jew. It, the salvation is from the Jews, as our Lord would say. You know that that's where it's going to have to come from. If this is the gospel you believe, <laughs> this yes. is the background. I hadn't thought about that, but that makes sense as well. You know, I forgot the Romans had their deities along with the Greeks. It's almost like that bumper sticker with all the different religions. <laughs> Let's coexist. <laughs> Yes, it's always hard to tell the Romans and the Jews and the Greeks let's coexist by learning the truth. Coexist and worship the emperor. It's very simple. <laughs> Pinch that incense. That's right. right. <laughs> but again, you know, you think of Christ. Was he wealthy? No. Did he have status within the society? Well, no, he was crucified, which was a death so shameful that evidently the Romans did not crucify Roman citizens. That was reserved for the subject peoples. Right. And so, you know, Chrysostom even talks about in his own day, it appears probably he was preaching in Antioch. We're talking about mid to later part of the 300s. And he exhorts his 
his parish there, his congregation. If someone asks, do you worship the crucified? And, you know, evidently a large part of the population of Antioch at the time was still pagan. And so, you know, they didn't, how did they identify the God whom the Christians worshiped? Oh, he's the crucified. He's that criminal, you know? Um, so even in his day, uh, he was saying, if someone asks you that, say yes and heartily. Isn't it um, early is in the catacombs of Rome where they have the, the donkey crucified, where it seems like there's some graffiti where they're like making fun of Christians. Is that in Rome or is that somewhere else? Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? That yeah, I don't, I don't believe familiar. that's in the catacombs. Uh, that's, that's someplace else. Actually, I think it was on a construction site. Okay, and, and and it was an image that was created by a, 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 a Roman uh, making fun of a Christian worker. Gotcha. But it happens to be the oldest image of the crucifixion that we have. Oh, that's so, interesting. Underlining the point of the crucified was not respected. <laughs> right. And so it appears the Apostle Paul is sort of meeting them where they are, and they might be somewhat embarrassed. I mean, these presumably are the Christians, but in case they are still somewhat embarrassed about what they're believing, he begins where they are. I'm not ashamed of this. And of course, he's going to lead them on to its glories. Um, the beginning he introduced them, so they were expecting him, or some were expecting him, is that correct? Just come there and speak? Expecting Paul to come? Yeah, is that not what he was saying at the beginning there somewhat? Am I misreading that? Or? Well, he's talking more about how much he wants to go, which Chrysostom sees that he's really declaring his love for them, even though he has not had the chance to visit them, and explaining why he still hasn't been able to come visit them and that it's not for lack of affection. That's right. So this is a letter. He hasn't even, he's not really there. Yeah, he yeah he's right. That. Okay. All right. Right. That's probably the reason why he's got to be play so nice. <laughs> Assert his authority, but do it also in a way that makes them want to uh, receive him when he comes. He's kind of warming them up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there are some other nuggets here along the way. They're in verse two. Uh, the gospel which he promised before through his prophets and the holy scriptures. Now, um, why do you think he would mention this? To whom would this be important? Well, that's directed to the Jews, right? That's certainly what occurred to me, and no doubt it is. But it also has some real significance for the Romans. Because one of the early charges against Christianity was that it was novel. Yes, right saying, we can't take you seriously. You've come up with this new religion out of nowhere. Nothing that new could be worth listening to. And so Paul is saying to the Romans, no, no, this you will find in the Hebrew prophets who evidently, the, in that sense, the Romans held a certain, held in somewhat of an honor the, the, the Hebrew religion because of its age, because of how old it was. And so this is emphasizing to the Romans, this is not a new religion. This is, in fact, the oldest of the religions. This is where you eventually get the idea that Plato cribbed his notes from Moses. <laughs> that you find through Justin Martyr and other of the early fathers, where they make this point very strenuously that all that you find in Plato, you already, you can find it in Moses. That's interesting. I hadn't heard that before. I never heard mm -hmm. that before either. Well, I'm pretty sure I'm not making it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not disputing. I'm just interested I, I, to, to hear something new. But, but a lot of people probably didn't see the risen Lord uh, when he was when he was resurrected. Uh, and so it might have been hearsay to him or just a blank. They just didn't right. just see that. Um, 
I'll mention also there in verse eight, Chrysostom puts a lot of emphasis on this. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. He emphasizes, what, what is Paul pleased about? That people have heard of their wisdom? No. Of their obedience to the law? No. Of the glories of Rome that they partake in? Their wealth, their power? No. Their faith. And so he's praising them for their faith and not any of these other things. So can and, I ask you a question, Reed? Sure. Go ahead. No, so, I was about to move on. What is he lauding their subjective faith or that they have faith in the, the object of Jesus Christ? Huh. <laughs> David, <laughs> does my does my question make sense? Not well, to it me, depends but... on whether oh, or not yeah, you. Think... <laughs> no, it, that depends on whether or not you think the objective really exists, Father. <laughs> <laughs> well, so like verse seventeen to go back to tie this: the just shall live by faith, which I believe is a quote right from Habakkuk. Or. Yes, that's right, I believe. What, it, what, it, what does it mean to live by faith or that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith? Does Chrysostom talk about that at all? He does. In that phrase, from faith to faith, he sees implied everything that you would find in Hebrews 11. That essentially, it's an illusion... Uh to the whole story of faithful people within the Old Testament. Oh. And of course, I like he, that. he understands um, Hebrews to be written by Paul. So he, he sees Paul saying here in a few words what he elaborates on in fullness in Hebrews 11. Which would make sense flowing from 16 since the power of God is to salvation was to the Jew first. So the mm -hmm. righteousness of God has been revealed already, was already being revealed to the Jews and the prophets, et cetera, and now has been revealed to everyone. Mm -hmm. All right. The reason I asked this question is because the, there's a lot of debate about what Paul means here by faith. <laughs> well, I noticed back in verse five, he's received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith. Right. And so that's what whatever, I mean by objective. Yeah. Whatever faith is, it leads us to obedience. Okay. So are there other comments or insights anyone would like to make or share about these first 17 verses of the chapter? I got a silly question going. Were the Greeks considered Gentiles at that time? Yeah. 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 Everyone knows how to Jew. Judaism. Yeah, the Jews were the, like you said, the first in life. They're the goy. Um, verse three, this is, a, uh, this is apropos of nothing else that we've talked about, but <laughs> sorry, verse four, verse four. Although I love the parallel of three and four of the humanity and divinity of Christ, um, that the, the declaration that he is the son of God with the power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. I... I love that fragment of a sentence <laughs> that he is, that he is vindicated, that he is now declared, this is truly my son, right? When we've already seen a theophany, he's now because of the resurrection and it's pure, it's, it's beautifully Trinitarian as well, right? That, that he has been declared to be the son of God according with power, according to the spirit of holiness. Just to tie it back into Acts 2 and the sermon there with Peter, you know, that mm -hmm. it is the Holy Spirit that will not leave his body in the in the sepulcher. But he in raising him from the dead, he's been vindicated and declared to be the son of God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Chrysostom does a lot with that verse. Um, he. Um, he says it requires some exp explanation because of because of the close folding of the words is his phrase. 
And I know I looked at uh, David Bentley Hart's New Testament translation, and he says about that verse, it's a very contorted sentence so that it's very hard to say exactly what is supposed to refer to what. Right. Uh, but Chrysostom takes it that essentially what the apostle is doing is listing a, successive, a, a succession of proofs that Christ is the Son of God, that he has the testimony of the prophets. He has a birth that's contrary to the rule of nature, uh, that the power refers to the power of his miracles, that when he talks about according to the spirit of holiness, this refers to the giving of the, the spirit to the believers, making them holy, and then, of course, the resurrection. So it's just like he's pounding point after point, showing Christ to be the son of God. Nice. Anything else anyone would like to say before we move on? <laughs> we might actually get to the first chapter, Reed, except <laughs> now the wrath of God is being unveiled, so never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Look, if we made it this far by, what, 808, we've got a shot at finishing the rest of it tonight. <laughs> Anytime we're not spending an evening per verse, we're doing great. Um <laughs> I'm keeping myself <laughs> muted. Okay. <laughs> okay, so we're going to pick up here at verse 18. Uh, let's see if I want to say... Let, let's go ahead and read it first. Would someone kindly volunteer to read 18 through the end? I'd be happy to do that. Thank you, David. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and, uh, and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has, God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanliness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did, like, did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, Bidding, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Thank you. Wow. Okay. So we have a transition here. Sort of seemingly a transition into the main body of the letter. But there's first of all a contrast. Because in verses 16 and 17, we have seen the power of God to salvation and the righteousness of God revealed. <clears throat> and as Chrysostom talks about that, what he sees is 
God's gospel is not only for salvation, but it is to make men righteous. And he contrasted this to evidently a practice in his own day that a ruler may issue a pardon of someone. It sounds a great deal like presidential pardons that have been in the news so much. And this pardon frees a person from the penalty for whatever they had done, but it left them in shame of whatever they had done, right? It didn't make them upright before the law. It just shielded them from the punishment. And he's saying part of the glory of the gospel that Paul is preaching is that it not only offers salvation, but righteousness, and not just any righteousness, but the very righteousness of God to those who come to him in faith. And so Paul seeks the salvation of his listeners, first of all, by putting this beautiful picture before them of salvation and righteousness. But then he says, since not everyone's motivated by that, he also turns to motivate them by fear. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Um, you know, sort of, it's the, you know, it's the stick and the carrot, right? <laughs> it's like, well, seek after this or fear this, but it's all that they might be saved. Um, and he says that you would expect that Paul would say something more specific, like instead of the wrath of God, you know, the coming of Christ in his glory with 10,000s of angels to judge the earth. He says, why does he just say the wrath of God? Well, because that's as much as a lot of his audience was ready to admit yet. They were still novices at this. Wrath of God they could accept, and so he didn't push the details beyond what they were ready for yet. And as he goes through this whole passage, he's going to frame it or outline it in terms of these two words, ungodliness and unrighteousness. Um, ungodliness referring to false doctrine of God, specifically here idolatry, and unrighteousness being the way of life that flows from that, if you will. So he sees those two words as having rather specific meanings and sort of, again, outlining what the Apostle Paul is going to say as he talks first about ungodliness down to the end of verse 25, and then about unrighteousness starting at verse 26. Now, I would sort of like to frame this within the context that John Chrysostom sees there, but does anyone want to say anything about this so far? I, th I think it's um, helpful I, uh, to just kind of underline what you just said about the uh, the carrot and the stick, that you have two revelations going on, or it's the flip side of the same coin, as it were. Verse 17, you have the righteousness of God that's been revealed from faith to faith because of Jesus Christ, but also the wrath of God is revealed because of the righteousness of God that the just shall live by faith versus those who are not justified by their faith in God, but because of their lack of knowledge of God and therefore the idolatry, their life mm, lives according to their idolatrous ways. Yes. Yeah, and that's very much how the argument goes here. So what I'd like to do, I, I sort of tried to write myself some notes so that this would, I could, I could say it more efficiently, because this passage sort of, it has two contexts. One is it sort of needs to be understood for what it is in itself. But secondly, it needs to be understood as the beginning of a much longer argument. Okay, so let me start with the outer set of parentheses here with the longer argument. So here, the apostle begins a long argument aimed primarily at the Jews in behalf of the Gentiles. Okay, so this, this passage is beginning an argument mostly aimed against the Jews in favor of the Gentiles. And Chrysostom explains this at length. He doesn't actually say all of that until he gets to Romans 2, verse 10. But um, 
Paul wants to explain that the Jew has no advantage over the Gentile. Indeed, the Jew suffers a greater burden, a greater responsibility by his possession of the law. But to make this message more palatable and compelling, he begins here with a strong accusation against the Gentiles for their idolatry, that is to say their ungodliness and their wickedness, which is their unrighteousness. And notice that it is before the times of grace, because he's going to mention in verse 20, since the creation of the world. And so as Chrysostom understands the apostle, he's at great pains to say, the Jew never had an advantage over the Gentile in regard to God. And so when we say that he has no advantage now, we're not introducing some new thing called the gospel that's hostile to Judaism. We're simply teaching what was always true. So he understands this whole passage to be referring to people before the coming of Christ, before the time of grace. And so he argues that even in those times, they had no excuse for their doctrine, that is their idolatry or their behavior, because the creation itself provided adequate testimony of God. And those who did well, we start to see this in chapter two, received God's approval. So the Jews who had the law were all the more responsible to hold right doctrine and live well. And those who abandoned the, uh, the law and right living suffered even greater punishment. So even in those times, the Jew had no advantage over the Gentile before God. Consequently, when the gospel gives no advantage to the Jew over the Gentile, there's, this is no novelty reflecting you know, something new in the gospel, hostile to the Jews. But Paul makes a lot of that argument implicit rather than explicit because he doesn't want to alienate his Jewish audience by rubbing their noses in it. So that seems to be how Chrysostom understands this part, this as fitting into the longer argument Paul is making. I think it helps Paul's argument that this is very classic Jewish way of arguing, period, right? This is an anti-idolatry diatribe. Right. <laughs> if you follow idols, this is what happens. And of course, we saw him doing just that in the Acts study when he got to Athens, right? Right. But in this passage, <clears throat> he's not talking about the Jews. He's talking about the Gentiles, right? Right. And as Christians... Because he says that... Uh, uh, who suppress the truth and because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them and then he goes on to explain how God showed it to them in the creation of the world his invisible attributes are clearly understanding clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and so on and so forth so he's talking about you know even if you're not a Jew and you haven't received uh, the word of Moses and the prophets, it is clear from the world and the way the world works. Right. Am, am I right? Yes. Yeah, that's the argument. And so he's not saying anything about Jews here. And as Chrysostom understands it, he's not saying anything about Jews. He's coming down hard on the Gentiles because he's getting ready to make an argument against the Jews. And so he's starting on ground that will make this all more palatable to the Jews. which is sort of an interesting way to read the scripture to think, okay, a lot of what he's actually trying to argue, he's not going to say because he would alienate his audience. And so you have to fill it in. So at that time, I'm, gl I'm glad for John Chrysostom as a guide to know what should be filled in. So it makes me think of the people I know that, that, that uh, and I run, I've run into this frequently, people will say, well, you know, I don't go to church if I want to feel close to God. I have a walk in nature, and I think, well, well, yeah, you're right. You're right, but are you really deriving from nature what is there for you to derive? I don't know if that made any sense, but. Mm -hmm. I think you get that romanticism, David, after Christianity is in for a very, set in for a very long time, too. That kind of sentiment that I can walk around and read Wordsworth or something like that and commune with God. But isn't there a little bit of that in what uh, Paul is saying here? 
Yeah, I think there's a little bit of it. You have it. This is Cicero, and it's it's also it's a um, it's a broader Mediterranean Greco-Roman idea as well. Not necessarily that there's one god, but that obviously there's gods. There's some kind of divinity because look at all this stuff that's here. And maybe it's worth talking about in this passage then. You know, it says the creation was there revealing God. So what hindered the men from receiving that instruction and responding to it? Right. What does the apostle say provoked these men to turn away from the God whom the creation revealed? That verse 22 and 23? Yes. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. Right. Or birds or four-footed animals and creeping things. A calf, yes. if you will. And so as Chrysostom looks at this, he looks at that phrase, professing to be wise. And what he sees is, instead of taking in the revelation of the creation, they started pursuing their own reasonings. And this led them to worshiping oh, okay. not only the creation, but in fact, the images, just images of things in the creation. And, you know, ultimately things that creep along the ground, they're worshiping. Can that be said about the Bible and that people tend to worship the book instead of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Or? You definitely have the tree. An interesting question. And what it's for, you know. I'm sympathetic, I'm sympathetic to that, Mark. To that, Mark. <laughs> Archbishop Dimitri mentioned something about it. That's all. <laughs> but a lot of people say, this is my Bible. This is, and I had an Episcopal bishop who made a deal out of that, too. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, I know well, from my own. Islam worships a book. I mean, and I think that's what Archbishop Demetrius is trying to distinguish: is the Bible's important, but we don't worship the book. It's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that's within the book. I guess is what he was trying to get across. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, certainly that was part of my becoming Orthodox. I I came to understand that I really wanted the Church to teach me what's in this book. <laughs> I tried it on my own for a long time, and it's like, I think there's, I'll get better results the other way from the church. Your own reason you got in the way. Yeah. No. <laughs> but I think that's a similarity, perhaps, in what we're reading here, is that, you know, the Bible is revelatory. It is not the revelation itself, if you will. That's... And, and, and I th maybe Paul's saying the same thing about... Uh, uh, you know, understanding the things that are made even as eternal power. Uh, uh, anyhow, through you know, that you, you can, you, you, the world reveals God, but that's just the revelation of God. That's it's revelatory. It's not the revelation itself. It's not God itself. So let's look at where we are here. They have rejected the knowledge of God because they're so enamored of their own wisdom. Now, as Chrysostom understands the apostle here, this is all a story of God seeking the salvation of man. And so we see it, first of all, he reveals himself in the creation. Men misuse the creation. They follow their own reasonings. And so they turn to idolatry. Instead of finding God through the creation, they start to worship the creation or the very images they make of it. So what's the next fallback position? How does God respond to that to seek their salvation? Are you referring to the, the giving up? Yes. Gave them up in verse 24 and 26 and 28. That's right. He allowed them to follow their reasonings to their to their end. Exactly. And Christensen talks about this giving them up. He says it's not that God hadn't already done everything that was proper to do for them. But then 
when they rejected all of that, he says what was left was either to force them to be vir to, to do right, which would not be virtuous on their part, so wouldn't gain them anything, or to leave them to themselves. I, I sort of think of uh, C.S. Lewis's comment, there are ultimately two kinds of men, those who say to God, your will be done, and those to whom God says, okay, have it your way. That not be seen also in Moses uh, and 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 uh, Pharaoh, Yule Brunner, <laughs> in, uh, <laughs> all the different plagues he kept sending to him. But he gave him so many chances. You know, so God, why is he, why is God doing all? But if he gave him so many chances, and Pharaoh just kept getting harder and harder apart, in mind and whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Pharaoh's a nice microcosm of humanity. <laughs> I think this, so is also God... a, this is also a criticism of Judeo-Christianity uh, because uh, uh, people, I've, the atheists have argued with me, well, you know, if God was a good God, he would not do this. He would not give us up to our uncleanliness and he would, he would not give us up to our vile passions and, and that he would, he would build something into us so that these, you know, that we didn't act evil like this. Free will thing. <laughs> yeah, Mark just said it's that free will thing. Well, and I think it's interesting that when Chrysostom comments on this, he never talks about free will, but simply that if God forced them, that would not be any virtue on their part. Right. Which presupposes the ability to choose and the virtue attached right. to that. You can't because you can't have virtue without free will. So let's look at this. God is seeking their salvation, so he gives them up, verse 24 to start with, gives them up to uncleanness. Now, how is this going to lead to their salvation? I'm sorry. How is his giving them up to their uncleanness meant to lead to their salvation? Well, forgive me for doing this, but there's an old saying in AA that you can't begin to recover until you hit bottom. Mm. Can you I, explain? Because then you're supposed to realize the helplessness that you alone have no power and all mm -hmm. that. And that's when you hopefully turn towards God and start seeking, having the fear of him and seeking towards him. Exactly. Oh. You become so desperate that you'll do anything to recover. Yeah, and I think it's maybe, it, go ahead, Father Daniel. You saw me breathe. I did. <laughs> uh, I can't get Maximus out of my head in regards to um, righteousness is the use of things in the correct way and that all that's happening here is the abuse of nature so that even though they are worshiping you know these corruptible images there he's allowing them to um as as mark and david both been saying kind of wallow in the the pigsty in a certain way so that they can actually understand the depth of their own reasoning and where that road leads them and then how the creature or the idol or the things that they think that are going to free them or give them the goods that they're looking for are really aren't, aren't going to give that to them. What's going to happen is they're going to receive shame. They're going to have the penalty of the error um they and it's just going to tear them apart because that's what in verse 28 this is a, a epistle about unity well part of the problem is you know what's man all of this stuff unrighteousness wickedness covetousness maliciousness so without god you know curing or healing those things then we we find the penalty of our own error, our own way. 
as mm -hmm. kind of echoing just what David and Mark are saying. And this is also how Chrysostom reads it, that in verse 24, he sees this dishonoring their bodies among themselves. He's saying, you know, they end up treating themselves and each other in the way that you would expect enemies to treat them so that they might sort of learn by actual experience what these lusts of theirs lead to and learn to flee from them. One thinks of the prodigal son. Right. And so we see in verses 26 and 27, it goes a step down even. When they didn't respond to this dishonoring with their bodies with one another, then he gives them up to vile passions. And this emphasizes what you were just saying, Father Daniel. They're giving up the natural in order to take on the unnatural. And, um, you know, Chrysostom emphasizes these words like exchanged or leaving the natural use. It's not that they didn't have the opportunity to fulfill these desires naturally, but they worked at it to fulfill them unnaturally. And, you know, Chrysostom devotes a whole sermon just to 26 and 27 and talking about, uh, you know, how contemptible those are who practice such things. And... Um, wasn't that in today's reading one of them where he, uh, he he took up the righteous man before he gets perverse by the evilness of the world because it uh, oh it, for the it, it has a way of just luring you in and and uh, so that's kind of isn't that what we're kind of saying here or what he might be saying? He's definitely talking about the effects of sin and how. It brings the fruit of it. You either learn from it or you don't. Yeah. And he talks here that even, you know, okay, there's a certain pleasure in doing these unnatural things, but the pleasure of unnatural things is not nearly so hearty as the pleasure of natural things. So that these men, even in their, um, in their pleasures, would learn that they're losing something by this mad path that they're pursuing. There's still an emptiness. Mm-hmm. Chrysostom uses the word, it's irksome. There's an irksomeness in such pleasures. It's interesting that uh, you're showing their read. They start dishonoring their bodies, then it's vile passions and the exchange of natural uh, use of bodies. And then it goes in 28 to giving up to a debased mind mind so it's interesting it's kind of this hierarchy what you think you're kind of moving downwards but to me moving to knowledge seems to be a higher but i guess what's actually the worst here is a debased mind even worse than a debased body mm -hmm. the struggle between the heart and the Yes, and you see that there at the end, sort of everything's falling apart. And Chrysostom takes it that this long emphatic mention of unnatural sins is that some, there's something about it that is specific to his audience, because Chrysostom finds it sort of odd that the apostle talks about this particular sin so much to the exclusion of anything else for a while. And so he says, eventually he hurries on so that people don't think he's hinting too much about them and goes to these other uh, sins that people are being captured by. But. In other words, in what we're doing today, it's nothing new. <laughs> yeah. Though I think it makes some of the things that go on today all the sadder because, you know, some of the things that we do in, in, commonly in our society that we should be looking at and be horrified at ourselves and turn to repentance, we're being taught by certain powers to glory in those things. <coughs> and so it discourages people from the, the, 
repentance and salvation that all of that is meant to lead them to. Yeah, really. So he closes it there in verse 32, talking about these who not only know the, the righteous judgment of God, but and not only do these things, but approve of those who practice them and say, he says, you know, this is yet even a step deeper when you don't merely do wretched things, but you start approving of the people who do them. When you noted the contrary. I can't help but wonder how much Paul is talking about himself here. Really, what's your thought? Paul speaking was, from experience? Paul was a great killer of Christians. So when you talk about murder, he could be talking about himself. Paul was a very proud Pharisee. He was a boaster of, 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 uh, of the fact that he was a Pharisee and he was a Jew. He, he, was, even, he was even boastful about, about uh, uh, being a Roman citizen. I think that sometimes comes through in sometimes of his letters. So, I don't know. I, 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 think, I think some of this can... And then there's a famous thorn in Paul's side, which has never been really clear. You know, you wonder... I, 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 just, look, I just look at it and wonder... How much of this is, uh, uh, is, is Paul actually talking about some uh, sins that he has committed himself? I, I, I don't mean to point my finger at any particular sin or anything except the ones that I mentioned. But it, it just, I just wonder, you know. It's hard to say what the effect of being knocked off the horse did to him. <laughs> yeah. Disa I just got to underline disobedient to parents. <laughs> I remember that with my kids. <laughs> I'm trying to yeah, find... that, That's one of those things that's striking to me. It goes with all, all these other things. He's He's talk, he, you know, murderers and, 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 and haters of God and violent and proud of boasters and disobedient to parents. It's kind of like, huh? Disobedient to parents. That's kind of. We live well, in a very different world now. <laughs> well, even Chrysostom comments that the, the, the sins that, that the apostle mentions here are seem quite varying in severity. Um but he, he comments in some of these that he talks about boasters um, as men who are not only sinning, but they're puffed up about it. And he says, look, when a righteous man is proud of what he's done, he loses his whole reward. How much more when a man is involved in gross sin and is boasting about it? Or, you know, inventors of evil things. They're not content with the evils already there. They're coming up with new ones. And he does uh, talk about disobedient to parents. And he says, this is people who are standing against nature as though obedience to parents is plainly according to nature. Which raises a question for me. When he gets down to verse 32 and he says, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Is he still talking about Gentiles or he's starting to talk about the Jews? I think he's still talking about the Gentiles because he even gives examples back when he's talking about, you know, the various forms of unchastity and perversion, how even the Romans in their laws or the Greeks before them had laws against some of these things. So, for instance, um, you know, the sins in verses 26 and 27, he says, well, a very wise lawgiver among the Greeks outlawed that sort of thing to the slaves and all but the nobility. Sort of, this was something only fitting for the nobility. Um, and so there seems to have been a clear sense, even within the society there, that um, these are not right things and people should not be doing these. And sometimes, evidently, there were even laws against them among the pagans. Oh, that's right. Okay, okay. It's Father John. I can't think of his last name right now. Uh... Father Stephen D. 
DeYoung. That's who I'm thinking of. I remember him talking about once about, you know, even though the Romans and the Greeks had uh, laws against murder and had laws against deceit and had laws against, you know, th things, things like that. So perhaps that's what he's talking about. So, in some sense, that gets us through the first chapter. We again, we missed a couple of details, but you have we're other comments. Really, uh, we're we're ending on a very uh, positive note here. <laughs> well, the apostle is setting up his argument, and uh, we'll, we'll start to keep this argument for another two chapters, isn't he? <laughs> At least. Well, we'll start to turn the corner in chapter two. All right. Other comments or questions? It's, isn't it, uh, I've heard more people not like Paul and Romans because I guess they feel like it's really hitting home maybe too much to them or more people tending who are of those that are upset with Paul because of what he says in Romans has been my experience. Mm -hmm. Last week, people shared their experience with Romans, and I didn't attend last week, but I, my, I think my experience was common, which is I always, uh, I've gotten into Romans a number of times, and I start out with a lot of enthusiasm, and I really like it, and then by the time I'm about halfway through, I'm completely lost and frustrated and angry, so. <laughs> I no longer know what he's talking about. Yeah, we talked about that. That's all we got to read. <laughs> well, yeah, I, shall I go ahead, Reese? Oh, no, uh, so I, I was just going to say that in that, I mean, in regard to people who are uncomfortable with Romans, I think just this passage we're looking at, the second half of Romans 1, reads very differently when you read it of the story of God seeking the salvation of his creatures. That the point of you know, even talking about vile passions is not to say how wretched the vile passions that are, how wretched the vile passions are, or even to say how she, we should respond to them, but to tell us about the means by which God has sought to save and redeem his creation. Which leads to the same question people say today, how can God let that happen? It's uh, basically, that's ignorance that's asking the question, but we, we don't know God as well as we think we do. So, should, should we, we call it there? Call it? I'm yeah. going to stop the recording then. We'll be back next week uh, for Romans 2. Yep. Thank you, Reed, and everyone. Thank you all. Thank you, Reed.